Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to the award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza. This is a podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today is a very special episode. This is regular episode number 100. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I thank you for your support. I thank you for hanging with me as we produce a new episode each and every week from somewhere in basketball history. And as I have mentioned before, this show is a labor of love. I have loved the game of basketball since I was 11 years old. Something just clicked in my mind and I could not get enough of it. Of course, it helped that I grew up in Southern California and my local team that was on TV three or four nights per week was the Showtime Lakers. Magic Johnson is the person who made me fall in love with this game. From the first moment I watched him, it was plain as day that he was playing the game at a different level from everyone else. For me, it all revolved around Magic Johnson and the fast-breaking style of the Lakers. There was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and his patented sky hook. The man could get a basket for the Lakers anytime they needed one. There was James Worthy running the lane on a fast break and finishing with his Statue of Liberty dunk. There were the alley-oops to Michael Cooper, Byron Scott with his mid-range jumpers, Kurt Rambis was doing the dirty work on the boards. That was a fun team to watch. Of course, as a Lakers fan, I do not like the Celtics. They were always the enemy to me, and they still are to this day, but I have an abundance of respect for the Celtics and what they have done as a franchise. No team wins 17 championships by accident. They have a rich tradition of great basketball, and I have spoken about the Celtics a multitude of times in previous episodes. It is nearly impossible to talk about basketball history with any sense of integrity and not talk about the accomplishment of the Celtics and their players. They are a huge part of the NBA. The man that got me into basketball history specifically, though, was Bill Russell. When I was 12, I walked over to the public library and I checked out his famous memoir, Second Wind. I was mesmerized. To read his story and what he went through with some of the racism that he had to deal with in 1950s Boston, I just had to read more. I picked up every book on basketball that I could get my hands on. Even today, I go to used bookstores looking for books on basketball history that are out of print. My personal collection numbers nearly 200 books on basketball history. And that is why I started this show, to share these stories from basketball's past with you. And I hope you continue to enjoy each episode. So today, for number 100, I thought nothing could be more fitting than to share the story of Will Chamberlain's 100-point game. I always start each episode by saying that we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. Well, the game where Will Chamberlain scored 100 points is not forgotten. Not by a long shot. Even a casual fan is usually aware of this record. But I do want to provide details to the story that you do not hear very often. The date was March 12, 1962. Will Chamberlain was in his third year as an NBA player playing for the Philadelphia Warriors. The place was Hershey, Pennsylvania. 
and the whole city smelled like chocolate. And that is because the city of Hershey is home to the Hershey Chocolate Factory. You could literally smell the chocolate from miles away. The Hershey Police Department wore chocolate brown uniforms instead of the typical blue uniforms in order to stick with the whole chocolate theme of the city. The city of Hershey is roughly 100 miles away from Philadelphia, but it was a home game for the Warriors. As was often the case back then, NBA teams would play some of their home games at different arenas around the region to attract more fans. Since the NBA was rarely on TV back then, there was no way for fans to see their favorite teams unless they made the long drive to the home arena. For many basketball fans, this was not financially feasible. So the Warriors would sometimes play their home games in Hershey in order to bring the game to the fans who might not be able to make it to Philadelphia. All of the NBA teams did this back then. The Chicago Packers would play some of their home games in East Chicago, Indiana. In the 1980s, the Utah Jazz would sometimes play home games in Las Vegas to try to develop that fan base. In other cases, four NBA teams would go to the same city and play a doubleheader. In fact, the first game of this season in 1962, the Warriors played a home game in New York at Madison Square Garden against the Lakers as part of a doubleheader with the Knicks and the Packers. You do not see this as often today, but still, sometimes the NBA will send teams to Europe, Asia, or Mexico to play regular season games to help strengthen the fan bases in those parts of the world. Sending teams overseas is an extension of what almost every NBA team did back then to build up their fan base. So, the Warriors were playing a home game in Hershey against the New York Knicks. It was getting close to the end of the season and the playoffs were going to get ready to start about two weeks after this game completed. Chamberlain was having the season of his life. He was averaging 50.4 points per game. And yes, I said that right. 50.4 points per game for the entire season. Do you know who has the second highest scoring average for an entire season? It's Will Chamberlain with 45 points per game in 1963. Third place, Will Chamberlain with 38 points per game in 1961. Fourth place, Will Chamberlain with 38 points per game in 1960. Fifth place, Michael Jordan with 37 points per game in 1987. Chamberlain also averaged 48.5 minutes per game that season. And right now you are probably thinking, the game only has 48 minutes. How can someone average 48.5? It is because he played every minute of every game the entire season except for one five minute break. And when you figure in all of the overtime games where he had to play 53 minutes, it means that he averaged 48.5 minutes per game that year. Now let's just say that the concept of load management was not yet on anybody's radar. Now if you were at the game, you could buy the game program called The Wigwam for just 35 cents. And yes, the name Warriors is based on a Native American theme. The original Philadelphia Warriors logo featured a Native American with a feather in his hair dribbling a basketball. Times were different back then. So as they were getting ready for the game, Chamberlain was on a scoring binge. In the three games leading up to this game, Chamberlain scored 67 points against the Knicks, 65 points against the St. Louis Hawks, and 61 points against the Chicago Packers. That is almost 200 points in a single week. He was on an absolute tear. So if Chamberlain was ever going to score 100 points, he would need help from his teammates to do it. He had scored 78 points in a single game earlier in the season, which was the all-time record prior to this game, so the idea of scoring 100 points now seemed like a real possibility, especially for a guy like Will Chamberlain. If he could score 78 points in the flow of the game, 
Imagine how many he could score if he was actually trying to get 100. But if he was ever going to actually get 100, it would have to be on a night where he was hot from the free throw line. But Chamberlain was never hot from the free throw line. He has a career average of 51% free throw shooting. During the 1962 season, which is the season we're talking about, Chamberlain had a particularly strong season from the free throw line when he shot 61% from the free throw line that year. In other words, if Chamberlain was going to score 100 points in a single game, he was going to have to get at least 20 or 25 points at the free throw line. Otherwise, there was going to be no other way to do it. He could get into the 70s and maybe the 80s on regular two-point baskets, but the free throws were going to be crucial. The game only has 48 minutes, so there are only so many possessions in an NBA game. For that 1962 season, Chamberlain averaged 17 free throw attempts per game. At a 61% average that year, he only made an average of 10 free throws per game. He would have to get to the free throw line at least twice as often if he was ever going to score 100 points. So let me set the scene even further. The Warriors were not just a one-man team, even though they had the great Will Chamberlain. They also had Hall of Famer Paul Arizin, and he was a subject of episode 56 in case you want to go back and learn more about Paul Arizin. The Warriors also had Hall of Famer Guy Rogers at point guard. They had Al Adels, another Hall of Famer. And they also had Tom Meshery, a one-time All-Star playing in his rookie season. And Meshery is a subject of episode 17 if you want to go back and check that out. So Chamberlain was surrounded by All-Stars and Hall of Famers. On the other side, the Knicks were a struggling team that year. They had Richie Guerin, Hall of Famer, who scored 39 points on this night. And they also had Willie Nalls, a four-time All-Star. And Chamberlain was the highest paid player in the NBA that year at $75,000. Owner Eddie Gottlieb paid only $25,000 to purchase the entire team just 10 years earlier. Well, this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with the details of the actual game. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row 1 catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row 1 Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Welcome back to the show, and now let us get started with the actual game where Will Chamberlain scored 100 points. The players came to center court for the tip-off. Chamberlain won the tip, and the ball went to Paul Arizin. He took a jump shot, but missed. Chamberlain grabbed the rebound and the putback for his first two points of the game. Chamberlain actually scored on his first five shots of the game, and with some free throws thrown in, he was up to 13 points in just a couple of minutes. Daryl Imhoff of the Knicks was the primary defender on Chamberlain. 
and no disrespect to Imhoff because he was a solid NBA player in his own right, but he was practically useless against Chamberlain. Chamberlain finished the first quarter with 23 points on 7 of 14 shooting from the field and 9 for 9 from the free throw line. That was a hot start that he would need from the free throw line. The game score was Warriors 42 and the Knicks 26. As the second quarter got started, the Knicks switched defenders and tried putting Johnny Green on Chamberlain, and he proved equally ineffective. The Knicks then tried Cleveland Buckner, who had a different strategy. Buckner was fine letting Chamberlain score at will because Buckner was simply going to try to outscore Chamberlain on the other end. Now let us just say that that strategy did not work either. Chamberlain scored 18 points in the second quarter on 7 of 12 shooting from the field and 4 for 5 from the free throw line. That gave him 41 points total at the half. The game score was 79 to 66 in favor of the Warriors. What this means is that the rest of the Warriors scored 38 points on their own, so it was not like it was only Chamberlain who was scoring. Now, for Wilt to have 41 points at halftime was not totally unusual. He had done something like this before. He was definitely on pace to break his own 78 point scoring record, but 100 points still seemed a bit out of reach. Famous Warriors announcer Dave Zinkoff, or The Zink, got on the microphone to give away some sausages and a basketball autographed by the Warriors team. Within each copy of the Wigwam game program was a unique number. The Zink called out the winning number, and then there was a dispute over who owned the program. A man came down saying that he had purchased the winning program, but a college kid asked to look at it, and when the number was called, the college kid was still in possession of the program. The college kid admitted that he was borrowing the program, but it happened to be in his hands when the number was called, so he laid claim to the prize. So they decided to split the prize. The man got the basketball, and the hungry college kid got the sausages, which he ate during the second half. Anyway, back to the game. The third quarter got started and the Warriors felt that something was brewing since Wilt was already 13 of 14 from the free throw line at halftime. If he was ever going to score 100, it was going to have to be a night when Chamberlain was hot from the free throw line. And he was hot from the free throw line. They decided to fast break as much as possible during the second half to get extra possessions and put Chamberlain into a position to get 100 points. At this point, this became a total team effort. In that third quarter, Chamberlain went 10 of 16 from the field and an amazing 8 for 8 from the free throw line. That was 28 points for the quarter and 69 total for the game. The game score was 125 to 106 in the Warriors' favor. With a 19-point lead, the Warriors felt comfortable and continued helping Wilt get the record. Now, before we get into the fourth quarter, I want to take a moment to talk a little bit about Chamberlain's free throws. Because he shot them so poorly, generally speaking, he experimented with a few different shooting styles in order to improve his average. He tried once backing up to the top of the key and shooting a regular jump shot. Some felt that shooting a jump shot allowed his mind to relax versus shooting a traditional free throw. But on this particular night, Chamberlain was shooting his free throws underhand, or granny style. A lot of people thought that shooting them underhanded gave the ball a softer bounce and would increase the chances of the ball going in. At least on this night, that theory was working to perfection. At the end of the third quarter, Chamberlain was 21 for 22 from the free throw line. Never in his life was he this hot at his free throws. Now that takes us into the fourth quarter. He continued scoring at an incredible rate with Guy Rogers feeding him the ball on most possessions. Rogers was a great point guard in the sense that he knew where his teammates liked to get the ball and he made sure to deliver it. With Will Chamberlain, he wanted to get him the ball in a position where he would not have to dribble more than once and then could go straight up for his shot. 
as he approached 78 points, the zinc was going crazy on the microphone. He screamed when Chamberlain broke his own record with a basket for 79 points. He said, ladies and gentlemen, a new scoring record has been created by Wilt Chamberlain. He has 79 points. The Knicks decided that they had had enough. They had just allowed Chamberlain to break the single game scoring record against them, and they were not going to let him score 100. The defense began fouling any warrior with the ball except for Chamberlain. They decided that they were going to put the other players on the free throw line and prevent Chamberlain from scoring on that possession. They did not care if other warriors scored just not Chamberlain. According to Arizin, Chamberlain began to get nervous as his scoring continued to climb. Chamberlain knew that this was a rare opportunity to get 100 and he did not want to mess it up. His team was working too hard to help him and he did not want to let them down. As Chamberlain got to 89, the Knicks now went into stall mode. The shot clock did exist already, so they could not stall for minutes at a time like they did in the old days, but they were going to use every second of those 24 seconds that they had available before shooting the basketball. They wanted to reduce the number of possessions for the Warriors to prevent Chamberlain from scoring 100. It was no longer about trying to win the game. The Warriors' lead was too large for that. They were definitely going to win the game. The whole situation really became about the five Warriors players working together to get Chamberlain 100 points against all five Knicks players who were trying to stop them. As the minutes ticked down, Chamberlain hit a free throw to reach 90, and then he hit another pair of free throws on the next possession for points 91 and 92 with 2 minutes and 28 seconds left to play. Due to the Knicks' strategy of fouling everybody, Daryl Imhoff had fouled out. Richie Guerin, Willie Nalls, Johnny Green, and Donnie Butcher of the Knicks were all in serious foul trouble. But Chamberlain hit another basket for 94 points. The crowd was absolutely feeling it. They were chanting, give it to Wilt, give it to Wilt. Guy Rogers of the Warriors then gets a steal with just a minute and 50 seconds left to play and takes off on a fast break. He passes it to Chamberlain for an easy layup for 96 points. On the next possession, York Larice of the Warriors drove to the basket to collapse the defense and passed it to a cutting Chamberlain for a ferocious dunk for 98 points. The crowd was going bananas. As Chamberlain was headed down court to play defense, he suddenly turned and stole the inbound pass. He took a jump shot from the free throw line, but it missed. The crowd crowd made a collective groan. They wanted it almost as bad as Chamberlain. And now the Warriors needed to extend this game to give Chamberlain as many chances as possible to get to 100. He was only one basket away with about a minute and 25 seconds left to play. So even though they had a 20 point lead, the Warriors started fouling the Knicks to stop the clock and get the ball back. If you had walked into the arena during the last few minutes of the game and did not know the score, you would have thought that the Warriors were losing. The Knicks were playing intense defense and the Warriors were hacking everybody to maximize the number of possessions left. Many fans came down from the stands and they were crowding the sidelines and the baselines. They were ready to rush the court. The entire arena was like an overinflated balloon that was going to pop at any moment. The Warriors then fouled Richie Garner of the Knicks. He made his free throw and Chamberlain immediately released down court. Guy Rogers grabbed the ball from the inbound pass and threw it full court to a running Chamberlain who caught it and shot the ball but missed again. This was now two misses in scoring 98 points. The crowd could not handle it, but Warriors teammate Ted Luckenbill grabbed the offensive rebound and gave it back to Chamberlain who missed again. Three tries at 100 and he just could not score. It was like somebody had suddenly put a lid on the basket. Honestly, it was probably nerves that was getting to him. He was overthinking his shots. As any good shooter will tell you, you cannot think about the shot. 
just shoot it. But Ted Luckinbill got the offensive rebound yet again and passed it to Joe Rucklick. Richie Guerin of the Knicks sprinted at Rucklick to foul him. Nobody on the Knicks wanted to see Chamberlain get to 100, and they were trying to put Rucklick on the free throw line so that they could take away that possession from Chamberlain. But Rucklick saw Chamberlain open in the middle, and so he passed it high. Chamberlain snatched the ball out of the air. He turned and went for the layup before the Knicks could even react. He did it! He did it! Chamberlain scored 100 points. The fans rushed the court to celebrate. It was pandemonium in the arena. Rucklick immediately ran over to the scorer's table to make sure that he got credit for the assist. He did. Guy Rogers finished with 20 assists for the game, mostly to Chamberlain, but there was still 46 seconds left on the clock. It took several minutes for the fans to get cleared off the court and back to their seats. And you would have thought that the Warriors would have taken Chamberlain out of the game to a standing ovation. But no. Coach Frank McGuire left Chamberlain in the game. Like I said earlier, he played Chamberlain the whole season except for a five-minute stretch. The ending of the game was anticlimactic compared to what had just happened. Richie Guerin shot a couple of free throws for the Knicks, and Rodgers tried to get the ball to Chamberlain for one last time to see if he could get to 102, but he missed. The game ended up with a final score of 169 to 147, the Warriors. So think about that for a second. Chamberlain had 100 points, but the rest of his team still scored 69 points themselves. That was an incredible effort. The fans were crowding around Chamberlain as he made his way to the locker room, and it was there that Warrior statistician Harvey Pollock got the idea to write the number 100 on a piece of paper for the photo. Paul Vathis, a photographer with the Associated Press, took the famous photo of Chamberlain holding up the paper with 100 written on it. For the fourth quarter alone, Chamberlain shot 12 of 21 from the field and 7 of 10 from the free throw line. He finished the game scoring an incredible 36 out of 63 from the field for 57% shooting, but he shot an incredible 28 of 32 from the free throw line for a very unusual 88%. Paul Arizon was one player who always thought that Chamberlain could get to 100, but as I mentioned earlier, it would have to be in a night when Chamberlain was particularly hot from the line, and on this night, he was. He never shot the ball like that again from the free throw line. Everything came together for him on that night in Hershey, Pennsylvania. What a night for Will Chamberlain. Two nights later, the Warriors played the Knicks again in New York City this time and Chamberlain scored 58 points. The Knicks and the Warriors played each other a lot since they were in the same division and the entire NBA only had nine teams, so you had to play everybody a bunch of times. They played the Knicks a total of 12 times that year. Every team in the NBA played every other team between 8 and 12 times per season. The joke was that the Knicks and the Warriors saw more of each other than they saw their own wives, but that was the NBA of the early 1960s. The jersey that Chamberlain wore that night hangs in the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. It is their most expensive piece. On my last trip to the Hall of Fame, I got to talking with one of the employees and he told me that the jersey is insured for $5 million. The jersey hangs behind bulletproof glass, so you cannot touch it, but I pretty much got as close as I could just to study the stitching. The colors of the jersey have faded over time, but it is still an incredible artifact to look at. Well, there you have it, the story of Will Chamberlain's 100-point game. Thank you for sticking around for this supersized episode. I always appreciate the opportunity to share these stories with you. And here's to what I hope are 100 more episodes. Join us next week 
when we share a profile of the life and career of Dolph Shays, one of the NBA's first superstars. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There, you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Lawiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.